turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 21 as we continue our journey in the Savior's saga. Uh, before we get to our time in the Word, I want to give you a couple of little things that you can look forward to over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we are about to launch a new digital bulletin, so we're going to be trying to reduce paperwork, you know, and keep, uh, keep a few trees uh, in the ground instead of in your lap. And so we're going to be doing that. We're going to show you how to utilize that. Along with that is going to come a really cool tool that you'll be able to come in. We're working on upgrading uh, our, our digital media sources that we have here at the church. So you'll be able to come in and get, on, get onto either your cell network or our local network. And you'll be able to actually have my notes on your phone. Um, so when we're doing PowerPoint, you can just kind of scroll through them and they'll be available to you that way. So a couple of weeks, we're going to launch that. We're also launching a new podcast uh, that'll go along with our Bible studies. So uh, we're trying to see what the Lord would do to minister best to the body of Christ. And because we're such a large body, uh, we figured not everything gets answered on Sunday morning or Thursday night or Sunday nights. And so we're going to do uh, a whole series of podcasts that will discuss things like gay marriage, uh, how to handle your finances, what do you do uh, with politics as a Christian, those types of things. So we'll answer those questions in a way that you can just go online and listen to like a 15 or a 20 minute podcast. It'll give you some background in scripture and help you work through those things so you can study to show yourself an approved workman by being a Berean. So uh, we look forward to launching those things here within the next couple of weeks. Amen. Our vision retreat was successful, so we came up with a number of things that uh, we're going to be launching here. So if you turn your Bibles now to chapter 3 here in the Gospel of Luke in verse 21, uh, we'll take just a little bit of a backwards glance uh, from a passage we actually covered last week, but it's very important as we get to uh, this particular passage that you notice that we have the communion elements, the Lord's table the table of grace is set up for us this morning, and at the end of this service, we'll be partaking together at the Lord's table, sharing in the sacrifice that Christ made on Calvary's cross, that his body was broken and his blood was shed for those of us who have received him, who believe in him, uh, who have committed our lives to him. And so I want to again remind you, because we do this corporately, you're in an environment with several thousand people throughout the church, and we are going to make those elements available to everyone. You're under no obligation to participate. Uh, if you don't know the Lord, uh, we want you to come to know him today uh, so that you can prepare your heart to receive from his table of grace. But if you don't, feel free to allow the elements to pass you by. Uh, because it is a serious thing that we celebrate because it represents what Christ did on Calvary's cross for us. Uh, as we begin our study this morning, and we pick up here in verse 21, we're also going to look at the companion passage in Matthew's gospel because it contains a piece of information that is very, very important to us as the body of Christ. Uh, before we get into the word, would you join me and we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, we thank you that though you are God, and you are the Lord God, omnipotent, who reigns, you're the Lord of heaven and earth and the king of the universe, that you would uh, choose to be here in our presence today to speak to us by your word. And so, Lord, give us ears that are open and attentive and can hear your voice. Pray that what is said would be 
all of you and none of me. Pray that you would bless us as we study. Uh, help us to hear and know and grow and obey, Lord, your word. And so we give you this time. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 21, and when all the people were baptized, and so it kind of gives you a picture of this, this large baptismal service in the Jordan River, uh, just slightly to the east of the city of Jericho, and slightly south, heading closer towards the Dead Sea as opposed to north towards the Sea of Galilee, that it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And so we looked at this passage last time. John has the the sole ability to say of all the people on the face of the earth, he got to baptize the Lord Jesus. What, a, what an amazing privilege. And while he prayed, and that he would be Jesus, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Now I want you to see, because we have debate within the church about the existence of the Trinity, or the triunity of God. And the chief reason people debate that is the word Trinity is found nowhere in Scripture. But I want you to see something, it's contained here in these two verses, And I don't know about you, but I'm not into schizophrenia with God, and so I'm pretty sure there are three persons here. Notice who it is. It's Jesus who's being baptized. Amen? It is the Holy Spirit that descends and lights on him as a dove. That would be a second person, would it not? You can't have one who is also be the one who comes unless that other one is someone else. And notice whose voice it is that comes from heaven. That would be God the Father. So in two verses, you have all three persons of the Trinity having different functions in the exact same setting. So you can mark that when someone wants to talk to you about whether there is a triunity or a triune God that functions in three persons, and yet all are God. Here they are, all working together in two verses. So mark that for yourselves. But as we look at this, there's a very important aspect of the baptism of Jesus that's recorded there in Matthew's gospel. And I want you to see it. If you'd turn there, you can keep your finger in Luke chapter 3 and turn back a few pages to Matthew chapter 3. And we'll pick up in verse 13 there. And then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you when you're coming to me. And you'll notice that this is slightly different. And Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. I want you to look at this passage with me. After all the others have been baptized, Jesus presents himself to be baptized by John. Uh, We know that this is Jesus of Nazareth. We know this is the perfect son of God. Uh, We know that Jesus had no reason to repent of sin. He was sinless, amen? So Jesus is not being baptized for salvation. So you can check that one off your list. But he joins in an ordinance in the church 
which every believer should follow in. There are two of them. One of them is communion. The other is baptism. Jesus took part in both those ordinances himself. Why? Because as we're going to see in what follows, Jesus' physical lineage, though he was not born of a woman, he is absolutely one of us as a man because we find his lineage traced all the way back to guess who? Adam. And while he was not born of a man, he came from man and thereby was exactly like you and I, a man in his humanness. And so this picture says something that we need to lay hold of. It says it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Who's the us? Do you think that's John the Baptist or do you think that's the us as in the triunity or the triune Godhead? And it is certainly the latter of those two things. Why? Because we have to ask ourselves a simple question. When you look at this passage, Jesus identifies with us. He's saying, I want my church to be able to identify with me, and I'm identifying with them. I came to seek and save that which is lost. I want them to know that I know what it is to be exactly as they are, human in every way. Jesus was tired. Jesus was hungry. We're going to see Jesus next tested in every single area of your humanity exactly as you are. That's coming in the very next passage. But Jesus came to identify with you and with me. He wants us to know that, look, I'm starting my ministry. He's going to now spend about two and three quarters years ministering in the region of Galilee and then finishing the work in Jerusalem. But he's saying, look, I'm one of you. It begins at about 30 years of age. Look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. It's interesting that if you trace back to the book of Numbers and also the book of Leviticus, you're going to find that when someone wanted to go into the ministry as a Jewish man, it began at 30 years of age. And so Jesus, being Jewish, is still keeping all these things plainly in view so that when the priest would look at his life, they're going, man, he's trying to be like one of us. He's keeping himself exactly as we would keep ourselves. He began his ministry. At the same time, we would begin our ministry. And in fact, as Jesus says there in Matthew's gospel, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what is he getting at when he says that? Because what's he about to do? He is about to be baptized, amen? What does baptism represent? It represents your new life in Christ, the burial of your old life underneath the grace of God, and your resurrection to new life in Christ Jesus. So when he's baptized, he says, I want to give them a picture of what it means to be saved. All righteousness is how you get saved. Amen? The grace of God comes on you because you have believed by faith in the only begotten Son. And so what happens is you identify with exactly what Jesus is identifying with. He is going to go through a fellowship of sufferings on the cross where he will physically die for your sin. He will physically be buried in the grave and he will physically be raised from the dead. 
And so as this baptism takes place, he's showing us what that actually means when we go into the water to be baptized. This is a picture of your salvation that comes to you by the work of the cross. Every bit of your righteousness is not your righteousness, it's his righteousness. It was provided for you as a gift. He died in your place. He suffered in your place. He was bruised for your iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was put on him. It was his blood that was shed so that your blood does not have to be shed. He was raised as the firstborn of all of the dead so that we could be raised with him. So Jesus says there in Matthew's gospel, here's a picture. This is what righteousness looks like. It's to be buried and it's to be raised because you're declaring yourself dead in your trespasses and sins, but he has made us alive. Amen? So understand that little tiny thing. It was what Jesus did at the cross that brings us new life when we believe in him. Amen? What about the word us here? And again, I don't want to belabor this, but there are only three times in Scripture when God the Father speaks, and they're all very important things in the life of Jesus. And so they're in Matthew chapter 3. It means the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, because in Luke's gospel, we have the recordation of who's in the picture. Jesus is in the water. The Spirit comes from heaven and lights on him, and God the Father speaks. And so the us fulfilling righteousness is God's plan from day one. Amen? We were seen as, he was seen as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Amen? So when Jesus came, this was not an afterthought on God's part. Think of this. You see, sometimes people say, well, God's just this mean tyrant who's in heaven and he finally fixed up the mess he created. Oh, no. From the beginning, Jesus was the answer. He gave man free will, gave man the ability to do whatever man wants to do. And God, in his graciousness, sends his own son into the world to die in our place to save us from our sin. That's a good God who always had a good plan, who has always loved us who is working right now in the hearts of all of us in this room to make sure that we know that Jesus came as one of us and us, the whole of the Trinity, was at work in our salvation experience in times past and will be there when we get home. That's the us. God loves you. God has always loved you. God has never not loved you. One of the things that, let me just be honest, infuriates me at times is when people who claim to be Christians say God hates and then names maybe a people group or a person or God, let me be really clear, God does not hate homosexuals. God does not hate hate Muslims. God hates sin. Sin destroys lives. It is the sin that people do that God hates. He does not hate the people. 
He loves everyone. If you read your Bible, it is very clear, Peter writes, God is unwilling that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't hate anyone. He loves everyone. That's why Jesus came. And so we need to be very careful about the language we use in reference to God. Because God hates sin. He does not hate people. He may not like what they're doing. He hates sin. He's actually against people actively in that sense. But he doesn't hate them. He judges that sin so that they might come to the table. So that they'd repent of that sin. And come into his family. And so this whole picture presents a loving God. When God spoke from heaven in this sense, he's saying, look, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. What is God the Father going to allow to happen to his son? He's going to allow him to be murdered. That's how much he loves you. From heaven's perspective, the the greatest gift that God could give us was his own son, and he did. And so make sure you look at this from that perspective. God cries out to us constantly. He's saying, Jeff, I love you. He's speaking to you right now. I love you. That cry from the cross was, I love you. Father, forgive them. Amen? God says, it is finished. The work's done. I received that sacrifice. It's good. The next thing that we see, and it's a long passage, and we're going to read through it, so hang on to your hats, 75 names here. Not all of them are easy, but we cover it chapter and verse, and I'm not going to tell you what every name means. That's on you. You can look them up. But next we have the ancestry of Jesus, and we'll cover why people think that this is a contradiction, because there are two genealogies, one in Luke and one also in Matthew. And now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, in other words, people weren't quite sure, not that Jesus wasn't sure, or John or the gospel authors weren't sure, but people weren't sure, so they supposed uh, the son of Joseph. He was the son of Joseph from their perspective, they thought. They weren't quite sure because there was this virgin birth issue, amen? And the son of Hele. Uh, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jonah, the son of Joseph, the son of Mataniah, and the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, and the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, and the son of Mataniah, the son of Semei, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Jonah, and Jonas, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of uh, Elmodam, and the son of Ur, the son of, it could be Jose right there, just saying. But I think it's Josie. The son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Matat, and the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, and the son of Elakim. The son of Meleah, the son of Manan, and the son of Mattathiah. The son of Nathan, the son of David. And now these are some names you're getting into that you're probably familiar with. 
the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Amminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, and the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Zerug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Selah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arkspod, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mathael, the son of Canaan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the very first son of God. Amen? So there you go, all 75 names. Why in the world do we even care? That's the question that people often ask. It's like, here's this long list. And very often when people look at this list and they go to Matthew's gospel, it's like, oh man, look at this, this is a contradiction. Now I want you to understand something. The gospels were authored by whom? By God, right? Every word came from God. They were authored by the Holy Spirit when those men of old wrote on God's behalf. It was God speaking, but as God was speaking through them, he was also speaking to them. And so when you're speaking to someone who is Jewish and someone who is Gentile, don't you think they'd have different concerns? They would see things from a very different perspective. You have a Jewish tax collector and accountant writing Matthew's gospel, and you have a Gentile medical doctor writing Luke's gospel. And so just like God does not erase your memory and your life experience and who you are as a person, he did not erase the gospel author's personhood. He left them exactly who they were and used them exactly in their sphere of influence to write companion genealogies one to another. Now, why would he do that? Because he's trying to speak into our lives this history of some 4,000 years of of human history, if you want to look at it that way. And people always say, you don't really believe that there's only 4,000 years of human history. I happen to believe that the Bible is true. And what the Bible indicates is there's about 4,000 years of human history that preceded the age of grace that we're in right now. Why do I say that? Because science has a very, very, very tough problem to figure out. Let me tell you what it is. It is the missing anthropological evidence of millions of years of habitation of this earth by human beings. If you've ever noticed, we have zero fossil evidence of us as humankind, and we have some of the most dense, heavy bones that exist in any life form on this planet. So when you take a human being and put them in the ground, their bones last a long time and they last a really long time when you figure out that all humankind, regardless of where you live, care for their dead in a very, very caring way. And so if people had been here for millions of years, there would be billions of human fossils available for us to look at. Guess what? There aren't. The evidence is so scant that when you get back to Australopithecus or some of these supposed pre-humans, 
there's exactly three of them that exist in the entire world. And they're most commonly confused with types of chimpanzees or apes so that we don't actually know if they're human. But when you get to humankind, most of the fossils that we date fall within that range. So where does Luke take us back to being a doctor? The first man, Adam. He said, I want you to know who you are as human beings. He takes us back to Adam in that way. That's what a doctor would do. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and moves us forward to Jesus. And Luke begins with Jesus and moves backwards to Adam. There are two totally different concerns, but they paint a very, very, very similar picture. Matthew gives us the ancestry through Joseph, and Luke gives us the ancestry through Mary. You kind of want to know who those who people are, because there is a hidden line. It's the line of Nathan that's buried within this genealogy. The reason that's true is what happens in the history of the kings of Israel. There were several very evil kings. We're studying one of them, King Ahaz, in the book of Isaiah. He was so evil that his wife, Anthoniah, attempted to wipe out all of the males of the line of Israel. He says, we want to take over. And she was nearly successful, except for guess which line? The line that would be the line of Nathan. And so we have an extremely accurate account of the lineage of that includes the line of Nathan here in Luke's gospel. He was another son born to David and Bathsheba and ultimately related to Mary. So Luke is being precisely guided by the Holy Spirit to show us different details. So be careful when you say, oh, they're contradictory. They're not contradictory at all. They were attempting to prove two completely different things. Now, I want you to see how this works because the details in this do actually matter. The details matter. Because the first prophecy in your Bible is actually found in the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And it's the prophecy of the seed of a woman. A woman doesn't have the seed. The man has the seed. So this is clearly speaking of the virgin birth of Christ, the Messiah, What do we have recorded? The lineage of the virgin birth of Christ, the Messiah. And so it's to prove the point that Jesus fits those criteria. Satan had seduced Solomon into hundreds of pagan marriages. But what you have contained in this genealogy is Mary and the regal line through Solomon and the natural line through Nathan. So you have the right to sit, which is a biblical authority that's given to the Messiah, the right to sit on David's throne. That's the important part. That's the detail that matters because Jesus could not be Messiah if he didn't have the right to sit on David's throne. And guess what the genealogies prove? From both of them, he has the right to sit on David's throne. So these genealogies, though they are long and a bunch of words that are hard to pronounce in English, they matter. You look at some of these kings and you're going, how could the Lord possibly descend from them? 
And so you have buried in here this, this kind of secret line of Nathan. God shielded all of that evil and kind of kept this one little branch and said, my son's coming from that one. And of course, it would lead all the way to the reason that he was born in Bethlehem. It's the city of David, right? Because he was of the house and the lineage of? What do these genealogies prove? He's of the house and the lineage of David. And oh, by the way, he's also related to Adam. And so when you look at this, he was of the royal line of the kings. You see that in verses 24 to 31. He was of the religious line of the priesthood. And people always say, well, he's not related to the priesthood. Yes, he is. Where did the priesthood come from? It came out of Israel, did it not? So what happens? Who's Jacob? What's his name changed to? Israel. Who are his his followers? He comes from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob, who is now Israel. So in that sense, he's related to all 12 tribes. You can trace him back to the whole of Israel. So no matter which individual line he came through, he's traced back to the priestly line that way. And then finally, there's the the racial family or the human family. And that's the important part. That's really the crux of this particular genealogy. I'm going to invite the communion team to begin to pass out the elements of communion. And I would ask that you would hold them. You'll receive the bread first and then the cup. And we'll partake together. But this is where this touches you and it touches me. Because you notice what happens here. We get all the way back to the Israelites. We make it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as you you see this family tree unfold, it it connects us to Jesse. It, It connects us to Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. Think of that one. It connects us to Rahab, the harlot. You you see, sometimes when you think about Jesus, it's like he couldn't possibly have any of me in his line. Jesus was related to a harlot. She was called Rahab the harlot. It's like, I hope none of you have a business card that say that. (laughs) But there's a reason. Why? Because we're all a mess in the human family. We all have issues. We all have problems. There is none righteous, not one. That's why we all need the broken body and the blood of Christ to cleanse our sin. You you see, in this line that takes us back to Adam, it's the line of all races. It goes all the way past the the Tower of Babel. It it goes well beyond uh, the time of Abraham and Noah. It goes all the way back to the first man. And it also goes to the final man, if you will, the one who wins the the victory for us by his own body being broken. But as he's related to Judah, and as he's related to Jacob, and he's related to Isaac and Abraham, and he's related to Moses, and he's related to the conquering Joshua, he is related to every single experience and thing you could possibly imagine in your own life. He's related to every race on earth. There is no such thing as a white Jesus. 
Amen? Sometimes I, I almost laugh because you see the depictions of Jesus and it's like the dude got bleached. He's from the Middle East. He was a Semite. He would have had dark skin, not light skin. He probably would have had dark, probably black hair, not blonde hair. He would most, most likely had dark eyes and not blue eyes. But we have this weird thing where it's like, well, you know, it's white people making the movie, so let's just make him a white Jesus. <laughs> He's related to all of us. Every last one of us. Amen? If you're here and your ancestry is Asian, he is related to you. If you're here and you're Hispanic, he's related to you. We're all in that one body that's related to Adam. We literally are one another's brothers and sisters like a hundred jillion times removed. In that sense, we're all cousins, if you want to look at it that way. We're actually related by blood. That's why when you look at our DNA, that about 98.75% of it is exactly the same in every human being. Those little differences are minute. This is so important for us because there's only one way to come to know the king. There was only need for one to die for the salvation of all. There was only one whose blood was shed on Calvary's cross. We don't need another Jesus. You don't need to die for yourself. What he did is sufficient for all of us. That's why in this relational way, when you think of these things, the human family that every one of us is a part of, that's why it calls him the son of God. Because ultimately, every one of you in here is a son or a daughter of God. The only question is, are you a saved son or daughter of God? You're actually related to Jesus, but have you received the grace gift? That's what Jesus offered at the cross, was the gift of his grace, which brings about his mercy, which gives us forgiveness of sin and ultimately eternal life. You see, when you begin to read the end of the book, Jesus simply wanted us to be able to identify that we're all a part of this. Some people say, well, I can't come to Christ because I'm a Rahab. Or I can't come to Christ because I'm an evil king. Or I can't come to Christ because I'm a liar. I can't come to Christ because I'm a thief. I can't come to Christ. And they just name their sin. And Jesus says, look, I want you to know something. There's nobody on this earth that I'm not related to. And so you're part of my family, Jesus is saying. I recognize my family isn't perfect. That's why I died on the cross, was to save you from those things. Because without it, you can't see heaven. But he says, my my life was sacrificed so that you would have eternal life. Don't pass that up. God tenderly loves you. That's why I started the way I did today. God is not some mean, arrogant, you know, all-knowing, omnipotent being that sits in heaven that's just waiting for you to mess up so he can condemn you. He loves you. He loves me. How does he want me to... Forget about my sin and and let it go and not do that, of course. But he looks at your sin 
as someone he loves, not someone he hates. Not someone he wants to condemn, but someone, if you don't choose him, you condemn yourself. He's offered the free gift of life. And he did so by dying on the cross in your place. When you look at that sacrifice, there's a reason why, why Revelation 20 says what it says. There's a reason that we commune around this instrument of torture. There's a reason that all those parts are necessary. Zachariah said he'd be pierced, nailed to a tree. The crown of thorns is because he was a king. He had to be crowned king. The sign above his head said he was the king. His body, which is connected to the humanness that's in you and in me, had to be broken, otherwise yours would have to be broken. His blood, which is holy, had to be shed in the place of your blood, which is unholy. Your blood wouldn't do. You could have drained every last drop of your own blood, and it would not pay the price of your sin. You could be turned into literally jerky, and it wouldn't be good enough. It wouldn't be good enough. It took Christ dying in your place on Calvary's cross. And that's the reason this genealogy says what it says. It connects every one of us to exactly one Savior. The only one who could ever save. The only one who is here today that's willing to save anyone who will listen. If you're here today, and maybe you're not sure, look, let me just tell you, All you need to do is confess Jesus Christ as Lord right now and you can be saved. And so as we pray, just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. I'm inviting you into my life. Please forgive my sin. And write my name in that book that's there and begins in Revelation chapter 3, the Lamb's book of life. That you see again in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Don't miss that. But Christ came. His body. His humanness. He identified with everything you. That's why he said us. Father, let's identify with them. And so Jesus at the Last Supper, on the night that he was betrayed, by the way, on the night Jesus was betrayed, On the night that someone representing your sin did the unthinkable. He said, let me betray the king of kings with a kiss. And as Jesus is walking in the garden, here comes the the Roman cohort, this group. May have been as many as a hundred soldiers to arrest a man who had absolutely no desire whatsoever to escape. He came that we might have life. And there Jesus at the table with Judas sitting at the seat of honor to his right. At the seat of honor. He said, who is it that will betray me? It is he who dips his bread with me. That would have been Judas. But he hid even Judas' sin from the disciples. He said, I'll pay for that too. 
And so on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had broken it, he said, take and eat, for this is my body broken for you. Let's partake together. The Bible says in like manner or in similitude, in the same way, in a representation. Jesus, after supper, took the cup. And when he had drunk from it, he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Shed for the remission of sin. And as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. Would you stand and we'll pray. Lord Jesus, we we thank you for identifying with us. Lord, many of us in this room used to be Judas. We used to be Rahab. Lord, we used to be lying Abraham and adulterous David. Lord, we were thieves. Lord, we lived our lives for ourselves, but you offered your grace and in receiving it, ask you to cleanse our sin. And Lord, we're thankful for the cross. Lord, we're thankful that the blood of the cross is sufficient to wash away all of our sin, not some of it, not most of it, but all of it. And Lord, we do remember you. We remember what happened to you at the cross. Lord, we remember the thorns. We remember the beating, the scourging. We remember the nails. We remember the mocking, Lord. You even took our emotional pain. Lord, we remember the sign that said you were the king of the Jews and they rejected you. You took our rejection and gave us your righteousness. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying in our place and shedding your blood so that we might be forgiven. Lord, thank you for the forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, we just dedicate our lives to you. Please use us for your glory. While we have breath on this earth, would you truly make us into a mighty force for you, the King, in Jesus' name. Amen.